0: The balance of evidence suggesting a discernible human influence on global climate was a historic conclusion of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report in 1995. Since then, the scientific consensus supporting that conclusion has only grown. The political consensus? It's been inconsistent, at least here in the United States.
1: If we move into a world where everyone manufactures their own reality, we're going to lose, and our kids are going to lose, and this country is going to lose, and the planet's going to lose.
0: On this episode of the American Scientist Podcast, an interview with Ben Santer, an atmospheric chemist who helped to author that historic 1995 report and who has continued his research through to the present day at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the United States. I'm Robert Frederick. The current state of climate modeling is really complex, with scientific teams all over the world working to better understand our climate. At Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Ben Santer's research focuses on evaluating climate models using statistical methods in climate science and identifying what he calls fingerprints, including humanities fingerprints, in observing climate records. Stanter has been involved in a lot of science communication efforts, too. Years ago, when I first met him, he was at a training session interacting with local weather forecasters, helping them to understand the constraints of climate science and, in turn, learning what the constraints of weather forecasters were in talking about climate science. I began our interview asking what kind of reports came out of that science communication effort. Here's our interview.
1: The reporting that I've read about that effort has been positive and suggests that there's been this sea change in reporting on climate change um, from on-camera, broadcast meteorologists that uh, many of that community are now more comfortable speaking on air about the reality and seriousness of climate change than they were even a couple of years ago. So targeted meetings between climate scientists and on-camera broadcast meteorologists that have taken place in markets around the country now for over 10 years. I think uh, pioneered by Bud Ward uh, and then later uh, taken up by Climate Central. These meetings have been very influential in letting each side better understand the constraints under which the other side labors. Uh, So climate scientists provide the latest, most up-to-date scientific understanding to broadcast meteorologists, and broadcast meteorologists provide climate scientists of some sense of the difficulties under which they labor, the pushback they receive if they speak about climate science on camera, the difficulty of conveying complex, nuanced science in 30 seconds or less. These meetings have been extremely valuable in terms of trying to figure out uh, how to do a better job with on-camera communication about climate science.
0: Are you able to work on advancing climate science with all of your government responsibilities, in particular responding to freedom of information at requests?
1: The answer is yes. Uh, one of the proudest accomplishments of my scientific career is that I've successfully avoided, until relatively recently, all management responsibilities and have been able to focus on doing what I love most, scientific research. FOIAs uh, have been somewhat of an impediment. Uh, Many of these have not been good faith efforts to try and understand the complex science that we do, but instead have been throw a spanner in the works, let's slow these folks down. In one case, I received a FOIA requesting quote-unquote, research data that I had generated in a five-year period. Uh, The nature of the research data were unspecified. So figuring out how to comply with a request like that, that uh, did not seem good faith, that seemed more like a fishing expedition, uh, that takes time, that takes energy, not only my energy, but energy from, from others. Uh, in the Lawrence Livermore National Lab Legal Affairs, um, Legal Counsel, uh, Department of Energy, uh, These these things are part of doing business, part of being a climate scientist now in 21st century America. What's the current state then
0: of climate modeling? To what extent has it changed in just the past few years?
1: Well, we now have much more complex models of the Earth's system than we had when I started off in this field 35 years ago. 35 years ago, we had uh, relatively simple models of the atmospheric general circulation, very simple models of the upper surface of the ocean, which was essentially treated like a swamp, Uh, very little representation of the complexity of the full ocean general circulation and how the ocean interacts with the atmosphere. Now we have these Earth system models that capture not only the three-dimensional circulation of the atmosphere and oceans and their interactions, but sea ice, carbon cycles, ocean biogeochemistry, atmospheric chemistry... And in the next assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, even three-dimensional ice sheet models. So think the Greenland ice sheet and Antarctic ice sheets and the interactions between those ice sheets and a warming climate and rising sea level. So these new Earth system models are amazing tools for trying to understand the complexity of the real world climate system and particularly these interaction terms between what we're doing to the climate system by burning fossil fuels, increasing heat trapping greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, warming, increasing sea level, how is that increasing sea level say affecting Ice shelves that are floating and holding back some of the Antarctic land ice that would otherwise be free to flow into the Southern Ocean and save and raise sea level. We can study those kind of interaction terms now with these uh, Earth system models with integrated ice sheets in a way that we could not previously. That is huge because arguably one of the biggest impacts of human-caused climate change is going to be felt through sea level rise. And we urgently need to better understand ice sheets on the move and how as we warm the planet's climate and start melting these big ice sheets, how rapidly and how uh, large their contributions to global mean sea level will be That's a a big uncertainty, and that's something we urgently need to understand. And we have a better shot of understanding that now with these integrated three-dimensional ice sheet models in full climate models. With so much scientific consensus
0: on the human influence of climate change, there is an advocacy argument that the science is there, and further refinement of climate models is like putting up more sensors to better characterize a impending train wreck. How would you respond to that advocacy argument that's coming from some people who are essentially science supporters?
1: Yeah, I've heard that argument before, and some attempted to make that argument after the 2013 assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that, quote, the science is done and dusted, unquote. And we need to focus more on looking at the impacts of climate change rather than on refining our modeling of the physical climate system. How would I respond to that? Well, something called the climate sensitivity is still uncertain. Uh, now, 40 years after the report of Jules Charney at al., so the Charney Report from the National Academy of Sciences was published in 1979. It involved a collection of uh, very, very talented and well-known climate scientists who, back then, made a very clear statement. Uh, if humans continue to burn fossil fuels, planet's going to warm. Uh, our best estimate of the warming that we would eventually reach for a doubling of pre-industrial levels of atmospheric CO2 is about 3 degrees Celsius plus or minus 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that uncertainty (laughs) in the uh, sensitivity of the climate system to carbon dioxide increases has remained stubbornly resistant to reduction since the Charney report. Why does that matter? It means that going out to 2100, there are uncertainties in projections of future temperature changes, future sea level changes, and many of those uncertainties relate to this uncertainty in climate sensitivity. Of course, the other big uncertainty is the emissions pathway we're going to follow over this century and beyond. How much CO2 and uh, other greenhouse gases are we going to emit? So the the projection uncertainty has these two components, really, uh, the climate sensitivity uncertainty and the emissions pathway uncertainty. Now, if I'm a policymaker, I really want to narrow (laughs) the climate model uncertainty as best as I can. It matters to me whether sea level rise is projected to be 1 foot or 8 feet by 2100. It matters to me whether global mean temperature change is going to be uh, 2 degrees Celsius or 5 degrees Celsius. So there's a lot of effort in our field in trying to shrink those projection uncertainties and better understand the feedback processes that contribute largely and drive uh, that uncertainty in, in climate sensitivity. And those are primarily uncertainties associated with the behavior of clouds and how clouds respond in a, in a warming uh, world with a, with a moister atmosphere. I would argue that it remains critically important to try and and narrow that uncertainty range in temperature in sea level rise projections and we're not going to do that without the kind of models that uh, i described earlier for the sea level stuff narrowing the uncertainty in sea level rise projections is going to require these integrated three-dimensional ice sheet models that are embedded in full climate models for the temperature projections, we need higher resolution models. um, In some cases, these so-called cloud-resolving models that actually try and explicitly represent the effects of clouds on incoming sunlight and outgoing heat from the Earth's surface. We're now in that territory where people are trying to embed cloud-resolving models in global climate models um, for, for the full Earth. So, it would be great if our understanding of the physical climate system were sufficient to say we we don't need to study it anymore. We should focus on other things, on on preparing, on ad- adapting. But again, I would argue that in order to have intelligent adaptation efforts and mitigation efforts, you need to have some understanding of the climatic shape of things to come in terms of geographical pattern, the granularity of that pattern, the seasonal aspects of the pattern, uh, the rate of change, particularly over this this century. And we we need to have better quantitative understanding of those kinds of things. We're not gonna get them without further modeling and we're not gonna get them without a diversity of models. There is no one model to rule them all at this stage of our scientific understanding. No one climate model that demonstrably does better than all of the other climate models in the world.
0: I like the Lord of the Rings reference. Well, I use that
1: because that's one of the things that some folks have actually advocated for and said, rather than having dozens of different climate modeling efforts... Let's pool our resources and have one model to rule them all, one mega-climate model, and pool all world resources in that one thing. Uh, But again, the lesson thus far from evaluating the entire world collection of climate models is we don't know how to do that. Uh, And there's been value in looking across a range of different climate models with different strengths and weaknesses, uh, and, and none of them does well in terms of everything we care about. Some do better, some do worse. And we, we we learn. It's like, as humans, you know, we learn from our successes and from our failures, not just from our successes.
0: So it sounds like to me, then, that you might be actually getting more support rather than less support from policymakers who really want to know, what are we going to have to plan for?
1: I believe it's... Critically important for policymakers to take this issue seriously.
0: Does that result in more funding or are you seeing a decrease?
1: Well, as you know, this administration is not a big fan of climate research, nor is it a big fan of international scientific collaboration, which is the kind of work that we do at Livermore, enabling an entire international climate science community to do. Uh, benchmark simulations uh, to do systematic uh, numerical model simulations that help us to understand historical climate change, deep time climate change, projected future changes. Again, there is at this stage of our understanding, no single model that tells us everything we want to know. So there's value to having the entire world scientific community look at these issues and share simulation output, share satellite data to evaluate the models with. The community has learned (laughs) from being knitted together and sharing information and ideas and simulation output and software, diagnostic tools, visualization tools, saying, as some in Congress have tried to do, we don't want any of that. (laughs) We don't need any of that. There is no value in satellites looking at Earth and providing us with information about how our planet's climate is changing. All of that is, in my humble opinion, ignorant. And ignorance is something that is not going to be a viable survival strategy for our country or for our planet uh, uh, going forward. Ever been to a climate strike? I have not been to a climate strike uh, before. Uh, that said, I have spoken at a variety of different venues or around the world, Sometimes to people who are quite sceptical about me and everything that I do, as I see it, that's where I can do the greatest good, by telling it the way it is. Um, This is what we did with the funding we received, this is what we learned. Uh, Here's how we addressed criticism of that work. And what i found is that's the most productive use of my time, talking about evidence, talking about the nature of of the evidence. How did we get here to this point in time where we know with high confidence that humans are not passive bystanders in the climate system? We're actively changing the climate system by burning fossil fuels, changing the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere. Let's have a discussion about evidence and facts and remain tethered to evidence and facts. If, if we move in, into a world where everyone manufactures their own reality, we're going to lose. And our kids are going to lose. And this country is going to lose. And the planet's going to lose. So each of us has a finite amount of time. And you got to decide. What's the most effective use of my time? And for me, increasingly, it's been talking about evidence. That's the most effective use of my time, talking about evidence in the public arena.
0: Ben Santer, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Rob. I've really enjoyed this interview.
0: Ben Santer is an atmospheric scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. For a different excerpt from our interview, including what Santer finds encouraging about our collective future, and that optimism includes, and I quote, the growing power of young people finding their political voices, find it in the May-June 2020 issue of American Scientist magazine. It's in the article titled, First Person, Ben Santer. Or find it online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.